Hi, this is Ben Sorens with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled Taking the East End. The history of William Booth's Salvation Army is an incredible tale in and of itself, but it can also be an incredible parable of sorts of how the church ought to find the lowest, crummiest, vilest, and worst part of town and go there to serve, preach, and rescue. The Salvation Army didn't focus on the affluent West End of London. Instead, they made it their mission to go to the East End, where crime and misery were rampant and where the gospel light would shine all the brighter in the midst of the darkness of those streets. May we too find the proverbial East End of our city and take it for the kingdom of God. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Taking the East End. Uh, My working title all week long for this was Aggressive Christianity. And this message has just been stirring in me. And I don't know exactly what's going to come out, but I am very excited to give this message. I just feel like I don't have it completely enunciated yet and my arms wrapped around it. I feel that it's bigger than me, which is a good place to be as a preacher. But there's something practical that must flow out of this message, and that is what I want to get a grip on. I want us to get a grip on what needs to be done as a result of this message. I don't want us just to stare at the message and nod along and say amen. Taking the East End. Before the end of all things. You know that there are certain things that are supposed to happen before the end of all things come. So when is Jesus going to come on his white steed? When is he going to return? Well, there's certain things that are said in the Bible that must happen before the end of all things. It's sort of just a fascinating thought, and so I captured a couple of those. In the context of the end and the end coming, it says in Mark 13, and this is Jesus talking, and the gospel must first be published among all nations. And then it says in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Isn't that intriguing? Well, there's been different men and women throughout the ages that have taken this up as the challenge for their generation. It's like, well, since all of us desire the return of Jesus more than anything else, well, then what needs to be done? Well, we need to publish the gospel into all nations. What are we doing sitting here then? Let's go. What are we doing here if there's a job to be done? Let's go. Let's go into all the world and publish the gospel into all nations. So there's a commission that is closely associated with this, and you'll all recognize this. This is just basic Christianity. And he said unto them, Jesus speaking, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What an interesting statement. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The early gospel tears. Remember what I was originally titling this message, Aggressive Christianity. I would say that Christianity today is anything but what we are going to discuss in this message. It doesn't mean that some people on this earth don't showcase it. It just means, as a whole, we are weak. We are passive. Now, I don't want to get into the issue of passivity and if it's a spiritual thing. If you have soul passivity, you're in error. 
Because when lust comes knocking, you must hit it in the teeth. You cannot sit by when someone is dying and going to hell and do nothing. That form of passivity is deadly to your soul and to everyone around you. So when it comes to passivity, in that state or in that situation, it is a sin. He who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So therefore, when we know what we ought to do, what should we do then? We ought to do it. And that's where aggressive Christianity comes in. We must be doing, not just hearing, not just nodding, not just saying amen, but actually living out an amen life. I believe it. And someone says, why are you doing that? Because I believe the word. Because I'm obeying what God said. This is what I must do. So the early gospel tears. Do you think there's any difference between the early church and us today? (laughs) That's almost laugh out loud, isn't it? You see, I am a firm believer that the gumption of the early church is available for us. That the stuff, that the power of the early church is still there for the taking. However, they had an attitude, they had a mindset behind the way they lived. You know that when the apostles, when when the Spirit of God was poured out upon them in Acts 2, they literally went into all the world. They couldn't stop preaching. They were told they would be crucified if they didn't stop preaching, and they would even answer back and said, I would not have even started preaching if I didn't understand that there was a cost to this. They understood the cost, but they would not shut up. We have no threats over our life here in America, and yet we don't preach. Yet we don't share. What is wrong with us? The early gospel tears, they gave up everything to follow. They built their entire life around prayer, the study of the word, and the sharing of the good news. They expected to be hated, despised, persecuted, and even killed. When they were told to stop preaching about Jesus, they kept preaching. They tirelessly labored to reach every nation. They were not just hearers, but doers. They changed the world in which they lived, and they did, in the end, die as martyrs. Every single one of the early apostles died a martyr. You could say, what about John? Well, he was a living martyr. The guy was exiled to Patmos. You know what that was after? After he was thrown into a vat of boiling oil and pulled out unscathed. They couldn't kill the guy. It's like, what do we do with him? So they exiled him. Every single one of them was greatly penalized in the natural realm because they would not shut up. This is what we could call aggressive Christianity. There's a world out there that was purchased. There's dying, there's lost, and something must be done. And so what do the Christians say? Send me. Send me. Well, you know that they'll kill you? Send me! We know we'll die. We must speak. You see, I'm speaking to those of us in this room who are more inclined to answer this call than maybe anyone on earth. And yet there's still a reticence and a cowardice inside of us. If that cowardice still remains inside of us, and that slowness to respond still is cultivated within us, well, what's the world going to look like in 10 years? This is our hour. Do you know that the door is still open in this nation for us to preach with liberty? They're not going to throw you into prison because you preach. Isn't that interesting? Now that may happen in the future, but right now we have a window unlike any other time, and we need to use it. Acts 26. So this is Jesus knocking Paul off his horse. Now I want you to think about this in the lens 
and in the light of Jesus actually speaking to us. Because Paul himself says, what you have seen and heard in me, do. So Paul's commission is shared. He says, hey guys, what I was commissioned to do, you're commissioned to do. What you've seen, what you've heard in me, replicate it. Do it. You have the same stuff to do it. So look at what Paul's commission is. And the Lord said to Paul, remember he has this bright light shining on him on the road to Damascus, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you. So there's a purpose for why Jesus has shown light into this man's soul. Why he has knocked him off the horse. Why he has stopped him in his fleshly pursuits and said, stop, Paul. Actually, his name was Saul at this stage or juncture. Stop. I have a purpose for you. Why is God shining a light into our souls? Why is he awakening us? I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. It's a clear commission. Paul, I'm calling you to do this. This is why I've stopped you today. You have a job to do. You are to witness and to share of who I am that I am the only source of salvation, to deliver people from the power of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of the dear son. Aggressive Christianity. You know, that was a book uh, written in 1880 by Catherine Booth, the mother of the Salvation Army. See, this is a Mother's Day message. (laughs) This woman had a growl. I mean, she is something special. So... This is a call to action issued by the Salvation Army in 1880, and it's basically the entire makeup. Now, the Salvation Army today that many of you know, you know, they ring bells and things like that, aren't quite the stature of what they once were. When William and Catherine Booth headed up the Salvation Army, I tell you what, they changed the world. And that's not an exaggeration. I think in 56 countries in a matter of years, It's just swept across the world. And people were radically coming to Jesus Christ and then going into all the world to preach the gospel. They had something. What they had, I want today. So we'll call this a call to action. But I'm not going to read you aggressive Christianity. It's a whole book. You could Google it and find it. But right in the very beginning, she says something. And it's been turning over in my mind all week long. This is what she said. I was thinking while I was reading these passages, by the way, this is just her talking. She was giving a message and then it was uh, transcribed. I was thinking while I was reading these passages, what if we could erase from our minds all knowledge of the history of Christianity from the close of the period described in the book of Acts? And then looking back at the book of Acts, sit down and try to calculate what was likely to happen in the world. So let's pause. You've read the book of Acts. Jesus Christ has come in power. The very spirit of God has been deposited in the saints of God. And then look what they've done. They're turning the world upside down. Wherever they go, people are bent to the glory of God. Persecution is broken out, sure, but guess who triumphs through it? Jesus Christ. His name is being made great. Acts 28 concludes, period. Now, you sit down and you begin to map out what would be next. 
what would God do in the world? What would the progression of this look like? What would the trajectory look like from there? God has done it. What would happen next? We would most likely expect very different results. A radically changed world is the outcome of it all. A system which started with such power under such promises and declarations on the part of its author and producing as it did in its first century such gigantic and momentous results. We would have thought, if we knew nothing of what has intervened from then until now, that the whole world would have fallen long ago to the influence of that system and would have been brought under the authority of its great originator and founder. I say from reading these acts and from observing the spirit which moved the early disciples that we should have anticipated 10,000 times greater results. And in my opinion, this anticipation would have been perfectly rational and just. Huh. How do we respond to that? You see, we're not responsible for 2,000 years before us. We're responsible for our generation. And all I know is that everything we need, all the equipment that is needed for life and godliness, everything that is needed to reach every generation, every nation for the gospel, has been deposited in us. We have that gift in Jesus Christ. We have the equipment. What are we doing with it? Are we ready to be trained, built up, and sent to fulfill that which was started by the apostles 2,000 years ago? I can't explain 2,000 years of flailing about, of dark ages. I mean, we have not been the healthiest church throughout the ages. There have been great men and women, but there's also been an enemy who is seeking whom he may devour. And not on our watch should it be allowed to say that the enemy has triumphed. The church cannot be under the enemy's heel. The enemy is under our Redeemer's heel. What has happened to us? We are waiting for the lost and dying to come to us. So many of us, we live in the comforts of suburbia, and we expect, well, if someone wants to hear the gospel, they can come knock on my door. I mean, what do they expect me to do, go out to them? We are hoping that the enemies of the gospel will just give up. You see, there's an ever-increasing power, an antagonistic dark power that is growing in this country. We all know it. We're just hoping that God intervenes and does something. Are we willing to be how he intervenes? Are we willing to be the instrument that he uses to intervene? But we have to be aggressive. You see, everything I'm saying is somewhat politically incorrect. Somewhat. You see, Christianity, when it becomes aggressive, they build crosses for it. Well, there's another option. Worldwide revival breaks out. There's only two options, though. Either the world is awakened, or they kill us. There's only been two options throughout Earth's history. When Christianity rises up in its strength and its authority, the world must either stamp it out or be changed by it. The closet, the proper use and the misuse. I remember talking to this pastor in Iowa, and this is at the time, I think it was, oh, I don't know if it was Obama's first uh, election or the second one, where the Christians were beginning to just turn inward and go into hiding. They were beginning to feel like they were under siege, and if they stick their neck up too high, it'll be, their head will be lopped off. And so as a result, I remember him coming to Ellerslie, and he said, I'm totally shocked 
Because everyone here is like living above ground as if there's a gospel to be preached in this generation. It's like everyone I know is going underground to hide and to save their own skin. Isn't that an interesting thought? I don't even think we at Ellerslie can fathom that. However, we're still a few steps away from the Salvation Army. Let's not brag about where we're at. However, there's a closet that many Christians are finding their way into, and it's not the prayer closet. They're hiding from the noise of this world and the deterioration morally around them. The powers of darkness are on the move. What are we supposed to be doing? Well, we have a closet. How are we supposed to be using it? Well, there's two different closets. There's the place of prayer, otherwise known as the prayer closet, which infuses the preacher to go into all the world and preach. What's a prayer closet for? To imbue and to gain the unction to go into the world, into the most dangerous place and preach. Well, there's also a place of hiding from danger, threat, difficulty, obstacle, and challenge. If there's a closet in your life, how are you using it? You see, there needs to be a closet, but make sure your closet is the one preparing you to go out into this world and proclaim. The Salvation Army, the beginnings. I'm actually a huge fan of the Salvation Army. I've been greatly impacted by the works of William and Catherine Booth. Tremendously impacted. The beginnings. This is so fascinating just to understand how they were formed and what led them to where they ended up. So this is Charles Clark. He wrote a book called Pioneers of Revival. One memorable day in July 1865, after exploring the streets in an East End district, so this is talking about William Booth, and in London, there were two sides to London. There was West London and East London, or the East Side. And so he was on the East End district, where he was to conduct a mission. The terrible poverty, vice, and degradation of these needy people struck home to his heart. He arrived at his Hammersmith home just before midnight and greeted his waiting Catherine with these words. Darling, I have found my destiny. She understood him. Together they administered God's grace to God's poor in many places. Now they were to spend their lives bringing deliverance to Satan's captives in the, in the evil jungle of London's slums. One day, William took Bramwell, his son, into an East End pub. Could you imagine and Eric took his son Hudson into a bar. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And William took Bramwell, his son, this is an old, his oldest son, into an East End pub, which was crammed full of dirty, intoxicated creatures. <laughs> Seeing the appalled look on his son's face, he said gently, listen to this. This is deeply moving as a father, just thinking of Hudson. Bramwell, these are our people. The people I want you to live for. Wow. And that's why the Salvation Army always refers to them as our people. He said, these are our people, and we want them to get to know our God. Who in their right mind goes to the East End? The East End is disgusting. In the 1880s, the East End of London was possibly one of the most horrific places on earth. You ever heard the term Jack the Ripper? Mm-hmm. That's the same time, 1880s. This is the East End of London. Murder was so commonplace that the police oftentimes wouldn't even show up. Absolute degradation and poverty. What's interesting 
is merely, what, half mile, a mile away, you have the west end of London, possibly the most wealthy place on earth at the time. One of the greatest contrasts maybe that has ever been created in history is the west end and the east end of London. And that far away was the greatest mission field. And most of Christianity at the time missed it. And yet there was one couple named William and Catherine Booth that saw it. Catherine, or darling, I found my destiny. I'm not exactly sure if we as the modern church have yet found ours. I think there's something still awaiting us, but God needs to awaken us to that destiny. Adopting the east end. There is always a west end and an east end. This is really fascinating. Remember the title I chose for this just because it's so perfect. Taking the east end. Remember what it was supposed to be? Aggressive Christianity. There's an east end. We as Christians take the east end. That's God's territory. Those are God's people. We're after them. I'm not going to sit by here in the west end and just bemoan the fact that there's an east end, wishing the east end would solve itself. The east end is solved by the body of Christ. It's Christ that does the changing. And we are the carriers of Christ. There is always a west end and an east end. So let's test that. So let's talk about our individual life. You know, there's certain attributes in your life which we call west end attributes that the world looks at and says, well done. And there's other areas that are the slums. They need some work. There's a little impoverishment there. They need some life. And where does the Spirit of God go? Does he go to the west end of your life? He goes straight to the east end. It's the strangest thing. He goes to the east end and changes it. Well, let's, let's talk about the church. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about family. You know that in every situation, there's a west end and an east end? As parents, where do we go in our, in our family, in our children's lives? We go to the east end. We go to their point of need. We don't go to their point of strength. We go to their point of need. And that's what we, where we bring Jesus. How about in the church? You know what? There's a west end and an east end of this room right now. And there's certain people in this room that are really hurting right now. That need the body of Christ to leverage their strength to go to the east end of this body. You know in this town that we live in? There's an east end. You can say it's Windsor, Colorado. Affluent in every place, in every life, in every marriage. There's an, a west end and an east end. And we must always tend to where the spirit of God goes. The Spirit of God always goes to the East End. The West End of London, affluent and wealthy. The East End of London, impoverished and dying. Where would Jesus go? Isn't it interesting that we actually know the answer to that, but we're not exactly sure that we want to say it out loud? Because we prefer the West End. We do. The West End is so much nicer than the East End. Jesus is from the West End. He came from the throne of heaven. He gave up his throne to come to the East End known as Earth. By the way, Earth stinks next to heaven. At least the fallen Earth. He came to the East End. He came to the slums to rescue those in the slums. He says, these are my people. And I want to introduce them to my Father. It's the same truth, the same reality. These are our people. Bromwell, 
These are our people, the people I want you to live for. Isn't that an amazing statement? Am I willing to say to Hudson and take him to the East End and say, Hudson, these are our people? Oh, that doesn't fit with my upbringing, my affluence, my suburban sensibilities. Yeah, you're right. It didn't fit with the kingdom of heaven's sensibilities either to come to this earth and bear a cross. There isn't anything in the kingdom of heaven that's likened to this. God is holy, holy, holy. This world is unholy, unholy, unholy. And God says, these are my people. And he speaks to us as his children. This is Bromwell. These are my people. And I want you to spend your life giving it up and serving them. The principle of living water. Have you ever heard the statement in scripture that talks about what's supposed to be gushing out from inside of you? Yeah, it always seems sort of strange when we think about it because it's like, how does that work? The Bible over and over again talks about a fountain that will break forth in Jerusalem and it will go into all of Israel and water it and it will bring life wherever it goes. It's called the river of life. But this river of life is not just a river in heaven. It is a river down here that started and was initiated at the cross of Jesus Christ. You know when Jesus died, the river was uncorked and the fountain broke forth in Jerusalem? Remember his side was pierced and what flowed out? What flowed out of his side was blood and water. Blood to the Hebrew is life. So this was life water. This is living water. And it was a river of living water that gushed forth out of his middle out of his innermost, as the King James says, belly, out of his belly. So it says in John 7, he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. We are those that believe, and as a result, we also give forth our life to those around us. And that's what it's talking about. Those that believe on Jesus will, like Jesus, give forth their life. What happened to Jesus when he was giving forth his life? He died. In other words, he died that others might live. Those that believe on Jesus also, out of their inner man, will flow and gush forth a river of life. They are glad and happy to spend their life. Now, we have a principle here. It's a principle of water. Water, and I've been working on this uh, riverbed in my backyard. You pour water in, and as long as the, uh, the, the slope or the grade goes down, well, then the water sort of follows that. It always goes to the lowest place, which is supposed to be a little pond that I have in my backyard. It's supposed to be. If it starts going uphill, everything goes backwards and wrong. Water goes downhill. It goes to the lowest place. Isn't that interesting? Just ponder that when it comes to Jesus Christ. Living water goes to the lowest place. So if you have living water gushing forth out of you, where's it going? It's searching always for the lowest place. You guys aren't as excited about that as I am. I think it's amazing. It flows to the east end. So my symbol of the east end is merely talking about east or west London, east London. And the water, if it was poured out in, in London, where would it go? it would flow down to the east end because that was the low place. For this is where Christ is. What you do unto the least of these, what you do unto the east enders is what you're doing unto him. 
And so that water is going where Jesus is. Jesus and the Spirit of God are in cahoots. They go in the same place. They go to the same location. They minister to the same people. You see, Jesus was led of the Spirit. And that same Spirit that was in Christ is supposed to be in us. And that is where it takes us. Humility. Like water, it is always drawn to the lowest place. You know what seat we're supposed to take at the table? Whenever we come to a banquet, what, what seat? Humility leads us to the lowest place. It's like water. So the living water, when it enters into us, where does it take us? It takes us low. It doesn't exalt us. It takes us low. The life of God has entered into us, and where does it take us? It takes us to the same place Jesus went. It takes us low. Humility, even in the definition of humility, it's the concept of the base of the Nile. It's the place where the water would go at its base. Isn't that interesting? It's the low place. That's humility. And we, because we bear the nature of God as believers, because the nature of God dwells in us, he takes us where he goes. And he's willing to go to the place where everyone is mocked, everyone is ridiculed, there's shame there. And Jesus says, that's where I must go. Those people are my people. It is strange, I, I must admit, that Jesus would find beauty and anything attractive in the East End because we don't. It stinks there. It's harsh there. People do not have manners there. They're not socially polished there. They throw rotten tomatoes at you even when you're trying to help them. They're not even appreciative or thankful for what you do for them. But it's the low place. And that's where the Spirit of God goes. Taking the East End with the force of love and humility, let's gain this territory. We don't use weapons. You know the Salvation Army? I mean, they're called an army. And they would say, we're going to go to war. And they would head out to war with their brass band, which, by the way, I'm not necessarily recommending uh, that we do, <laughs> with their brass band and prayer and the Word of God. And they would go to share the love of Jesus. So look at this. With the force of love and humility. That doesn't sound like a very strong force, does it? Well, when you watch what happened, people would throw rocks at them, hit them right in the face. They would fall to the ground, injured. You know, their tuba bent. <laughs> they would stand right back up and come at that person and say, I just want you to know the love of Jesus. He's changed me. I was an alcoholic just like you. I was angry and I threw a rock at someone as well. And they forgave me. I forgive you. People don't know what to do with that. East Enders don't have a clue what to do with this. You see, something special about the East End. They know their need quicker than the West Enders. The East Enders are at their end. There's not a lot more that's needed for you to come to them and say, you need a rescuer, don't you? Jesus loves you. You know that Jesus loves you actually makes sense to an East Ender, even though it doesn't fit. It's like, oh, if he loves me, why am I here? He loves you so much that he sent me to tell you. In other words, when you go to the East End, it's a shocker. It carries with it a force. I know it doesn't sound like much of a force, the force of love and humility. I had a dream. <laughs> so a long time ago, I had this dream, and it still is there. I still can see it. I don't remember, but it was this, in this dream, there was this whole ministry. 
And this ministry, I don't remember the name. I want to call it the Love Brigade or Love Inc. Okay, it was one of those types of things where they had a name and it had love in it. And I remember thinking how cheesy that was. Even in the dream, I was like, oh, come on. And I tell you what, these people, and I was a Christian, I was a Christian leader even when I had this dream. These people, with a single-minded pursuit, studied my life, washed my feet, and they loved me. Without condition, they just started loving me. And I remember in the dream thinking, whatever this is, this is love. And I remember being so moved by it, waking up and thinking, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, I don't really want to start Love, Inc. or the Love Brigade. (laughs) However, that was powerful. And so here I am today, after all these years, saying, I remember that. Whatever that was is what this church needs to do. Whatever that was, we have a job description. It's not to sit in a seat and listen to a sermon. It's to be the body of Christ in the East End, here, in this church, in this community. And then once we start solving those things, we got communities all around us. And then when we start moving outward, guess what? We have 56 nations. We need to pass the Salvation Army because there's a lot more than 56 waiting. We have a whole world that is in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the church of Jesus Christ is not fit, is not ready, is not outward. We have been hanging out in the West End. And as a result, we've grown weaker and weaker and weaker. I'm not even trying to say that there's something innately wrong with the West End. I'm saying it's when you find your life there and expect God to deal with the East End. And you say, oh God, I'm so glad you're a God of the East End. I'm so glad you're a father to the fatherless. I'm so glad you're you're the, the support for the widow. I'm so glad to know that you are. And he says, and you're my body. And I am a support to them. And I'm a father to the fatherless through you. So with the force of love and humility, let's gain this territory. This seems like a rather shocking shift, isn't it? The Valley of Elah, introducing the characters. So the first character, let's get to know, is Saul. He's the rejected king of Israel, the first, or the old man, the flesh, the self-centered ruler. Saul is what we have the same propensity to be like, okay? We start out like him, but then oftentimes, just like the Galatians, what starts in the spirit, we return to do in the flesh. Saul started out strong and then resorted to his own strength, his own mind, his own wit, his own wisdom, his own brawn. Saul was a very big man, supposedly head and shoulders above all the rest of Israel. So, in a creative way, we could say he was Israel's Goliath. David, the rightful king of Israel. So, Saul is the rejected king. David is the rightful king. He's the second. He's he's like the spirit of God. He's the one that comes in power. He's the shepherd king. See, he's not the self-centered king. He's the shepherd king. There's a big difference between the two. He's like Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. He's a Christophany of the Messiah who is to come. And then we have the third, Goliath, the great champion from Gath, the power of sin, vice, lies, darkness. He's like Satan. Okay, now what we have here in the Old Testament is a picture of in the New Testament what we know as the cross. Okay, now I'm going to go through both, but the Valley of Elah is the one, the man who comes, is the second Adam, the last Adam, the one who comes in the power of the Spirit, who crushes the head 
of the serpent. And meanwhile, there's two different responses. Saul sits by and does nothing for 40 days. He does nothing. There is a, there's a Goliath out there that is mocking, ridiculing, blaspheming the armies of the living God. And what does Saul do? Nothing. So in this story, who are we most like? You see, the flesh does nothing. He's passive. He just hopes and prays that Goliath will go away. That, that this will somehow go away. So he buries himself in his closet or in his tent. And he just hopes and wishes that this will all change tomorrow. What's the difference between Saul and David? David looks up, sees the giant, and says, uh, <clears throat> excuse me? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would blaspheme the armies of the living God? Forty days of proving. So remember when David arrived in the camp? It was on the 41st day. After 40 days were completed, then David delivered some bread and cheese, and he arrived. But there's 40 days of proving. And I'd say we've been sitting through these 40 days, and I think it's high time that we just acknowledge that it's been proven. That unless we have something that lifts us off our seat, we'll just stay in a church like this, hear strong messages, but we actually will not go and do. We are so susceptible to sitting still. We're very good at it. Most of us in here are Americans, and I'm guessing the Canadians in here can identify as well. And those from other countries, I'm guessing we all are of the same makeup. In other words, you give us the West End life, and we prefer it. You start serving us up filet mignon, and we'll eat it. You see, we have to be very watchful over our souls because we live in a West End territory. However, in this West End territory, in this West End life that many of us have inherited, there's an East End that must be tended to. You can live in the affluence of America, even though it's difficult, as long as you maintain the focus and the ministry under the East End. So 40 days of proving the flesh doesn't have an answer for the problem of Goliath. What's Saul do after 40 days? He has no answer. Even after 40 days, he has no solution. You know that we have dying, we have poverty, impoverishment, we have absolute disease issues running rampant across this world. We have the growing powers of Islam. We have the growing powers of the homosexual lobby, the complete eradication of morality in our world. What's the flesh's solution? Do you think us sitting behind a TV and just going, oh, I just can't believe what's happening in the world today. <laughs> it does anything. It's not going to solve anything. We can be upset with politicians, but actually, it's very highly likely that God is upset with us. You have everything you need. Everything has been gifted to you, bequeathed to you at the cross to change this. You're like, what am I supposed to do? Well, it's a good question. That's the question I think that this message forces to the surface. What is it that we are supposed to do? I recognize the, the sense of weakness that many of you feel even as I begin to bring these things up. It's like, oh, I'm trying. That's why I'm here being trained. At the same time, you're here being trained with a readiness to launch. What does C.T. Studd call it? Like lions in, cage, in cages, ready to spring forth. It's like you're a lion, lion behind a cage just saying, God, just tell me when. But some of us are in the cage licking our paw, and we're perfectly satisfied. But God is building us to be launched, to be sent forth. What is David's response when he arrives in the Valley of Elah? Is there not 
a cause. And his brother says, well, you only want the glory for yourself. That's why you want to do it. What kind of motivation is that to go and lay down your life? To take on the greatest, most powerful warrior in their generation. He's just a little guy. You've got to be kidding. And David says, is there not a cause? And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. This word I'm going to go into in just a second. But David hasted. You know, most of us think, you know, of what we would be like if, say we had our five smooth stones. We have the God of the universe. I mean, we have all that we need, right? But how do we approach Goliath? I mean, the most powerful, undefeatable foe you could ever come up against. I mean, how in the world are you going to overcome that? How does David approach it? It says that he hasted and ran. He hasted. Well, let's look at the word hasted. Mahar. To move headlong with haste. Who's going to do that? You got a 12 and a half foot man beast standing in front of you, and you're going to sprint towards him? That's what the word haste is. Sprinting, springing straightway into danger. To move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. Who does that? Who in their right mind is going to be aggressive in that sort of a battle? Uh, Jesus. Jesus and those that dwell in Jesus, called believers. It's Christians. This is how we function. Is there not a cause? It's in the East End, guys. Let's go. Did you guys ever hear this story? I know I brought it up somewhere along the line of the nephew of Corey Tenboom, Corey and Betsy Tenboom, his name was Peter, and he heard about the fact that there were a hundred Jewish babies in an orphanage that were going to be killed and exterminated by the, by the Nazis the next day. So they stole Nazi uniforms and snuck into the orphanage and rescued the babies. A hundred babies in the night. That is so overwhelming. And yet, what did they do? Is there not a cause? I don't know that many people on earth that would be willing to do that. That is like snubbing your nose at the Nazis. And not just that, but getting a hundred babies in the process. Oh, who mahars like that? A Christian. See, this is how David responded to Goliath. It's not the correct way of saying it in the Hebrew, but he mahard. This is a verb. It's an action. He had an action. He had a response. The word mahar. So this is a Hebrew word. Let's look at it David style. So when you break it down, it has three key letters because the vowels in the Hebrew don't actually exist. You have the consonant sounds. And so we have the m sound or the mem is actually the name of that letter. And its symbol or its pictograph is water, which it also means blood, chaos, or might. So we have David, and he is maharing, right? So he has boiling blood, swiftness of rushing rapids. And then the next letter is huh, hey, man with arms raised. The symbol is literally like this, with the arms outstretched. Breathing, looking, and revealing is what it means. So we have David growling for the glory of God with sling swinging above his head. And then we have ur, so mahar. Mahar, resh, which is the symbol of a man's head. First, top, beginning. And what does he do? He removes the head of the head. Who's the head? Who's the one that's bossing everyone around? Goliath. And what does David do? He takes off that man's head. 
to establish the true headship in Israel. He is the rightful king. So I don't know if you see the gospel in that, but it's pretty amazing. That's the actual word of what David did. The word mahar, Jesus style. Mm, for mem. Means water, blood, chaos, might. What did Jesus do? He poured out his own blood and water. The hay means with the man with arms raised, breathing, looking, revealing. What did Jesus do? With arms raised, he was nailed to a gibbet or a cross, breathing his last. And what did, what did we see? We beheld the Lamb of God, and he revealed the glory of the I Am. A man with arms raised, behold, reveal, breathing. Isn't that amazing? And then the resh, a man's head, first, top, and beginning. What did he do at that cross? He crushed the serpent's head and established his headship over all. So what did David do when he saw Goliath? He mahard. He sprinted. He moved with a liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. Aggression in the most unlikely situation. Who in their right mind is going to sprint after Goliath? Well, he obviously knew he was going to win because you don't sprint unless you have a great confidence. Mahar. To obtain, this is actually the same pronunciation. This is another Hebrew word, though. To obtain or acquire by paying purchase price or give a dowry to buy, especially a wife. That's actually what the word means. So the word means to sprint into danger and to purchase a wife. Isn't that great? I love it. Well, what did Jesus do on the cross? Exactly that. So here's an actual proper name that comes out of this word. And so the word is maharai, which means the impetuous, one of David's mighty warriors. His name is maharai. And so it's actually the concept of he's one who sprints into danger. And so the term that is used is impetuous. If you've ever heard a definition of impetuous, it's never usually a positive one. That means he doesn't think, he just goes. And what's ironic about it is this is the wisdom of God. When you know where the water is flowing, you follow it. Uh, You don't know where that's going. Well, I know he knows where it's going. You see, we are considered impetuous. We are considered absolutely lunatic because we will follow God into the East End. Uh, Don't you know that that's the slums down there? Don't you know they'll throw a rotten tomato in your face? Worse yet, it could be a rock. I know a guy who was hit right square in the forehead and died because he got hit with a rock in the east end. The waters flow in this direction. This direction I go. The impetuous. That's the actual name of a man. Isn't that incredible? He's one of David's mighties. I love it. The impetuous, one of David's mighty warriors, rushing with great force and violence, moving rapidly, furious, forcible, fierce, raging, as an impetuous wind, an impetuous torrent. So that's actually the concept of impetuosity right there. I took out the negative definition because I figured, what good is that? This is the definition. Rushing with great force and violence, moving rapidly, furious, forcible, fierce, raging as an impetuous wind, an impetuous torrent. Now what's interesting, as I said, by the force of love and humility, we win. And yet we move against, not, we don't move with furious, forcible, fierce rage against men. We do against the powers of the devil that are puppeteering those men. In other words, we are impetuous. We have a great force and an aggressiveness behind our stride because those powers of Satan 
will be crushed. We prove it in the natural realm. They were defeated on the cross. They cannot stand now. The spiritually impetuous. You know the concept of impetuous comes from a Latin root, which is the word impetus. You guys ever heard the word impetus? It's a great word. So one moved by impetus. So I'm going to define for you impetus so you can fully appreciate what it means to be uh, impetuous. So impetus, it's the force of motion, the force with which any body is driven or impelled, the force with which one body in motion strikes another. So you have David. He sees a cause. He sees Goliath. He hears the mocking. And what does he do? He responds. He mahars. He moves with liquid ferocity. What was going on inside of him? There was an impetus. There was a force of motion, the force with which any body is driven or impelled. Now, if I could make the word body huge, and you could remember this in light of the body of Christ. It's a force of motion, the force with which any body, oh, that's us, is driven or impelled, the force with which one body in motion strikes another. You know, the church is unstoppable. It's a juggernaut. I have a message from quite a few years ago called Unstoppable, and it's about the church. You know, when the church gets on those train tracks and starts moving in accordance with the power of the Spirit, this world cannot stop it. It literally will rush against the gates of hell and rip its gates off its hinges and plunder hell's captives. That's just what we do. We're Christians. We're simply doing the work of our Messiah, our Redeemer, our Rescuer. So impetus. What's our impetus? Well, his name is the Holy Spirit. I don't, Jesus' Holy Spirit. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So this is the context for that line. Listen to what it says next. Because what is this living water? It says, but this spoke he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So when you believe, what do you have inside of you? You have living water. And where does that living water go? It goes into the lowest place. And so what is our impetus? What is that force of motion that lifts us out of these seats and moves us to the east end? It's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has an ache. The Holy Spirit has a burden. And if we are the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and he has his eyes set on the east end. The church of Jesus Christ, the Maharahi of God. The mighties of Jesus Christ. Out of our innermost flows rivers of living water and we submit ourselves to the sufferings of Christ that we might reveal his manifold wisdom, his glorious nature, to this onlooking world and prove that the head of our adversary is crushed and that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I was trying to come up with something that, you know, like, are we the Maharahi or are we the Shaharahi? But I couldn't think of any word like that that made any sense, so this is what I came up with. Are we the Maharahi or the Mommy I'm Scared? I know, it doesn't rhyme, but which one are we? Are we the ones in our closet saying, Mommy, I'm so scared? I don't know what to do with all the powers of darkness out there. What do you think Israel was doing when David arrived? You know that every day Goliath was in the valley? He took a step forward. He was moving closer and closer. He was holding them in contempt. You guys are afraid, aren't you? Is there anyone who's willing to take me on? 
Anyone. All that was proven is that Saul wasn't the Savior. Your flesh, the firstborn, you must be born again. Because the firstborn life cannot overcome the East End problems. So are we the Maharahi or the mommy I'm scared? David hasted. Saul sat. David knew something needed to be done. He knew he had received the Spirit in order to go and do. Saul hoped that the problem would solve itself, that the big mocking giant would go away. But every day he woke up, the giant strolled forward closer, and his bark grew louder. David did something about the problem, grabbing four extra stones for the other noisome brothers he was sure to encounter after hastening after the one. Saul did nothing about the problem but hid himself in his tent. Which one? Let's give an accurate assessment of our souls right now. I'm not saying that you haven't ventured out and thrown a few stones in your life. But what is the state of us as individuals in the state of our church? Are we sitting in our tent, hoping the problem will go away, or are we willing to begin to go and do? The living water goes to the low spot. It is always in search of the east end. Jesus sought out the east end. I think it goes without saying. Who did Jesus come for? He came for the lowly, the poor. He, who did he invite to his banquet? See, Jesus came for those that needed a physician, those that needed to be rescued, those that would acknowledge, yes, I actually do live in the East End, as opposed to, hey, I'm a West Ender. Those that come into the kingdom of God start by saying, yeah, I'm, I have all the blandishments of the East End upon me. I am in a slum a slum of my own sin, and I need to be rescued. Please come, O Salvation Army, and play your brass band in my life and somehow rescue me from this pit of despair. Jesus sought out the East End. Oh, look at that. I just changed that screen. It says something new. Paul sought out the East End. Wasn't well, that an interesting statement? And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, well, we know that, and that's impressive enough. But look at what it says next. Not where Christ was named, or in other translations it says where Christ was already named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. In other words, he wasn't just going to the church. He was going to the East End. He was going to those who had never heard. He was going where Christ had never been seen or understood. He went to the difficult spots. By the way, that's the dangerous spot. To whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Listen to Paul. He's talking to the Romans. He says, for this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. In other words, I've been tending to the East End guys. I'm really excited to get back to you in Rome and to see the church in Rome, but I've been hindered. Why? Because I've been tending to the East End. The Spirit seeks out the East End, always seeking out the low spot. So in our souls, what is the Spirit convicting us of? The aspects of the old life, the destitution and the poverty that still remains in our life. He touches it. It's called conviction. Well, and it's not always that comfortable. You ever notice that where the Spirit is working, it's usually uncomfortable, even in our own life. It's uncomfortable to the firstborn. It's uncomfortable to our first life. It's uncomfortable to the old man. It's uncomfortable to the flesh. The flesh wants to stay in its tent. It wants to act as if everything's fine. 
But then David comes in and says, is there not a cause? The Holy Spirit enters into our life and says, uh, excuse me, who is this uncircumcised thought that he's blaspheming the armies of the living God inside of you? Is there not a cause? Our marriage. What would the Spirit of God do? Do we have an east end to our marriages? Something that needs to be tended, something that needs to be built up. You know that God cares about these things? So where is he going? He's going to the place of breakdown. He's going to the place of need. But the exciting thing is, if the Spirit of God is going there, that means he wants to bring salvation there. You see, the Spirit of God does not go on empty errands. If he's leading us there, if he's moving his water in that direction, guess what? It's because he wants to moisten it and bring life there. should excite us. To imagine that he wants to bring us into the East End anywhere is because he wants to bring life to it. He wants to bring strength to it. Our family, our church. If we begin to think this way, see, most of us when it comes to those first three, yeah, okay, I can understand that. That's where we're fairly well-groomed here at Ellerslie. Where we're not very strong is in our church body, and that's mainly because of how we've been set up here for so many years as far as being a, a college and not necessarily a local church, but that's changing. And as a result, I want this to be our specialty. I want us to be a local body that specializes in the east end of our body and in the east end of our community. If we're going to be a local church, then let's be a local church the way Jesus is a body. How the Spirit of God would move in and through a body. Our school, well, that's us. Do you know that Ellerslie has an east end as well? Every dorm room could have an east end. I don't just mean every dorm has an east end. I mean every dorm room. In other words, in every situation, say you have roommates, three or four roommates. You know that your job is to allow the Spirit of God to come through you and show you the spots that need strength around you? To wash feet is what it's called, where you take the lowest place and you're saying, let me be your servant. You see, we take the east end in every circumstance. When you walk into a room, I don't care which room it is, I don't care what the occasion is, in every room there's an East End. And the Christians specialize in finding the stragglers, in finding those that are weaker amongst the group. And what do they do? They supply strength right there. In every situation, there's an East End. And a Christian is excellent in the East End. Our businesses. In every business, if you're working a job, well, guess what? I have a hunch there's an East End to that business. And as a result, you begin to pray and ask God where he's going in this business. Why are you there? Why are you working there? It's not just to earn money. You're there as a missionary. You're there to preach the gospel. Our neighborhood. In this town, there is an east end. Just like in our soul, there's an east end. There's a place that God wants to be working. It's hard sometimes to get the vision of changing the nations for Christ when you live in a little cozy, sleepy town like Windsor. It's like, well, they don't need anything. You'd be surprised how much need there is. The question is, are we willing to go out and find the East End? Are we just going to try and convince ourselves that everything is West End? Oh, it's all West End. Everything's fine here. No one headed to hell here. Uh, Are we willing to wake up to the East End here and begin to practice right now? Well, our town, our state, our country, our continent, our entire world. Where's the East End? That's what we're attracted to. Now, what I don't want us to ever forsake, because one of the principles we could say of the East End 
is you never forsake the soul in gaining the marriage. In other words, you do not overlook your sexual addictions to try and make your marriage work. So you focus on just cards and love notes and you know, flowers. However, you don't allow the Spirit of God to deal with you. One of the things we do here at Ellerslie is we specialize in the very beginning of this list. And we say, first things first. Let's deal with that which matters most, which is you must be strong to deal with the east end of someone else. You need to be set free so that you can see clearly to help someone else be free. A spiritual impetulant. So that's uh, the new name for it. When you have impetuosity, you're an impetulant. C.T. Studd, the, uh, the uh, stud of Christian history. C.T. Studd was an aggressive Christian. Oh, I love C.T. Studd. Everything about him just causes me to rise up and want to shout something and make a fist in the air. I mean, it's so exciting. So I have a little collection of C.T. Studd quotes. Some of you will recognize them. Can it be the ears of Christ's soldiers are deaf to the call of God and the cries of the dying souls of men? King Nicholas declared to his wartime rivals that his modern engrids would henceforth spill their blood for their persecuted compatriots. When shall God be able to say, have you seen my Christians of today? No longer do they seek for gold or pleasure, for honors or ease. From henceforth, my Christians will spill their blood for the love and cause of my beloved son and the salvation of the neediest of men. Yes, when? When indeed shall we see a real church militant here upon earth? We should go crusading for Christ. We have the men, the means, and the ways. The doors of the world have been opened wide for us by our God. So believing that further delay would be sinful, some of God's insignificance and nobody's in particular, but trusting in our omnipotent God, have decided on certain simple lines according to the book of God to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. For this purpose, we have banded together under the name of Christ's etceteras and invite others of God's peoples to, to people to join us in this glorious enterprise. We are merely Christ's nobodies, otherwise Christ's etceteras. We rejoice in... And thank God for the good work being carried on in the already occupied lands by God's regular forces. We seek to attack and win to Christ only those parts of the devil's empire which are beyond the extremist outposts of the regular army of God. Our method is to search and find out what parts of the world at present remain unevangelized. And then by faith in Christ, by prayer to God, by obedience to the Holy Spirit, by courage, determination, and supreme sacrifice to accomplish their evangelization with the utmost dispatch. Do we have C.T. Studd today? That same spirit, does it dwell in the church today? That fight, that fervor for the East End. Is there a William and Catherine in the church today? Is there a George Mueller in the church today? Is there a Corey Tenboom who would open up her family and her home to persecuted Jews and hide them from the Nazis, risking her life at the same time? Is there a Peter the nephew of Corey Tenvum, who when he hears about a hundred little baby orphans to be executed the next day, will risk life and limb to find them a home. Is this us? Are we speaking of the church of Jesus Christ or are we speaking of some fairy tale out there? Here's where I know we are at. I know there's a hunger here and there's a desire to fit this bill. However, don't look into your own pockets this morning. And say, I just, I just feel weak. I feel vulnerable. I feel cowardly. I'm not asking you what you feel. 
I'm not asking you if you have it in and of yourself. The key question spiritually is, what is your position? Do you have that which you need to heed that which God is commissioning us as the church of Jesus Christ in this hour, in this generation, in this day? Do you have it? It's not in your own pockets, but you're in Christ. And therefore, all that is Christ is given to you. And the chief impetus that is offered to you is his Holy Spirit. And everything you will need to carry out the employment of Christianity, to be as we ought to be, you have. It's been given you in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.